Um, I don't know if you guys saw this story in the news. It was, uh, it was covered for a little while. About four years ago, uh, February of 2014, there was a, a couple up in Northern California that um, basically they had a big you know, field behind their house that they owned and they would take their dog out and take them for walks in the field and they took their dog out one night for a walk in the field and uh, while out there they tripped over something, looked down and saw a rusted old tin can which they dug up and opened and found that it was packed full of 1850 gold coins. Yeah, not bad, right? So then these are no dummies. So they started digging around and they found another can and 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 another can. And before they were done digging that night, they had unearthed the largest buried treasure in the history of our country, $10 million in gold coins from the gold rush era, right? So what would happen is these guys would come, they would, they would strike gold, and then they would take their gold in and have it minted in coins, and then they had it, and that was, that was uh, their wealth. And somehow, we don't know the story behind it, but somehow that, some guy buried his coins, and they stumbled across it. They have managed to remain anonymous. Um, they... Uh, they basically hired an organization that sold their coins online and they made $10 million in cash. So they are basically right now filthy, stinking rich. So the moral of the story is get off your lazy behind and walk the dog. <laughs> uh, or something like that. Um, not bad, right? Life changing, right? Now, you're probably thinking this is a sermon, so there's a punchline coming that's going to say, yeah, but then they were miserable the rest of their lives because after all, we're Christians and we're not supposed to like money. Not true. As, I, I know nothing about what happened. They managed to stay anonymous, and they, uh, as far as I know, were probably sipping margaritas by the side of a pool right now and having a great time. I, I have no idea. But, you know, um, it does make you wonder... I wonder if it made their lives better. I wonder if it made their lives worse. You hear a lot of times these stories, lottery winners and all that kind of stuff, and it ruins their lives. Um, I wonder what I would do if I won a treasure like that, found a treasure like that. I wonder what you would do. You know, it always cracks me up when the, when the lotto gets up to like, you know, 300, 400 million dollars. And then people who never buy lotto tickets are like, well, now I guess at 400 million, it's worth it. You know, <laughs> when it was just 50 mil, you know, but at 400 million, the lines go out. We all, we all, no matter who you are, I guarantee you, you have spent some time in your life thinking about the what if question. What if somehow I inherited a million bucks? What if somehow I won the lottery? that sort of thing. What would you do if you found treasure like that? Um, I told you a couple weeks ago that Jesus talked about money all the time. I mean, you couldn't spend any time with Jesus for very long without him addressing the issue of money and material wealth and all that. He talked about it more than he talked about prayer. He talked about it more than he talked about faith. Seems like, um, you know, a whole bunch of his stories had to do with money and a whole lot of his teaching had to do with money. And he once told a story about a guy just like that couple who stumbled across a treasure. And that story is in Matthew chapter 13. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the first book of the New Testament, book of Matthew. 
If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, I encourage you to bring one next week um, or, and just look on with somebody this week. If you need a Bible and don't have one, come and see me or one of the leaders afterwards and we will gladly put a Bible in your hand today before you leave. I can't think of a gift we could give you that would be more useful to you. But uh, Matthew chapter 13, and he tells this entire story. Jesus was such a better preacher than I am. He tells this entire story in one verse. Here it is. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and he hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the whole story. It's just like these people. He's, he's out for a walk. He cuts through this field in order to make some kind of a shortcut. He looks down and he sees something shiny and he, he pushes the dirt off of it and he, he realizes that it's a treasure and he digs it up and it's just filled with jewels and coins and all of that kind of stuff. And he is rich. Apparently there's been some pirate ship that crashed on that field or something. And, and he looks at it and uh, it's very clear in the, in the law, the way the property laws at that time worked. He didn't have a right to take from that field what he found because the field was owned by somebody and he didn't own it. So it would have been stealing if he would have taken it. So instead, he reburied it, went and did the research, figured out who owned the field, and lo and behold, he finds out it's for sale. And so he decides that he is going to buy the field and he sells everything that he has in order to get the field because he knows that when he gets the field, he gets the treasure. I'm I'm sure you can picture this. Imagine the same thing. You, You find this treasure and it's 50 million bucks and you bury it again. You do everything to stay within the law and then you go and do the research and you find out that the field is for sale and the cost is 100,000. But it doesn't matter because you don't have 100000 So what are you going to do? You know that if you could just get this field, you'd be incredibly rich, but you don't have the money to get the field. I guarantee you we would all do the same thing. Find a way to get the money, right? You'd find a way. If you have to sell your house, you sell your house, right? If you have to sell your car, you sell your car. You have to cash in your retirement account. Not going to need a retirement account if you could just buy this field, right? That's what you would do. You would do whatever it took in order to get that. You go ahead and make sacrifices because the value of what you're sacrificing pales in comparison to the value of what you're gaining. It's a simple concept. And he's talking about the incredible value of the kingdom of heaven here. And he's, he's implying that sometimes we, we ignore this incredible value of the kingdom of heaven and instead we stick to the little trinkets that we have here in this world and in the flesh. So there you are. You went across the field. You found the buried treasure. You sold your car. You sold your house. You cashed in your IRA. You bought the field. Now you have the treasure. Now you have $50 million. Congratulations. The rest of you, anybody happy? 50 million bucks, right? Just please remember to tithe. That's all I'm saying. So you could be the guy who stumbles across the treasure, but you could be the guy who buried the gold coins up in Sacramento too. Jesus told a story like that as well. It's in Luke chapter 12. Go to Luke 12. In Luke 12, Jesus tells another story. That gives, it, gives a completely different perspective on all this. And it begins in verse 16. Luke 12, 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. 
And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years now. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I find this story fascinating. It's such a sad story. He finally hits the jackpot. He's been climbing the ladder of success his whole life. He finally gets to the point where he's made it, and now he can kick back and and retire and enjoy life. And so he builds bigger barns, which is to say he invests in savings accounts and, and has all of his money stored up, only to find out that he dies the very next day. It's an incredibly sad story. Here's a guy, he did all these things. Now, what was his mistake? Why why is Jesus making him out to be kind of a fool? Was it wrong for him to build barns and store up his wealth? Was it wrong for him to save up for the future? Was it wrong for him to think that after a life of hard work, he could retire and relax? No, none of that is wrong. The scripture tells us what his problem was. His problem was that he stored up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. That that somehow he miscalculated what actual wealth is. He thought that if I could just do enough to where I could have food and shelter and clothing and you know, all of that kind of stuff for the rest of my life, then I will be, be wealthy. But he was not rich spiritually. And because he had allowed himself to become poor spiritually and he had ignored eternal things, when that time comes when his soul is required of him, what does he do? He goes from being incredibly rich to being incredibly poverty-stricken. Guys, I have to tell you, in my, in my role as a pastor, just in my role as a Christian, I've sat by way too many deathbeds. And I've talked to way too many people who are in their last weeks and last days of life. And they are crying because they feel like they have absolutely no spiritual footing. And there's something that tells them that they're going to need spiritual footing really soon. It's a sad story. Listen, why is this topic of money such a hot topic? Why, why is it one of those things that we don't like to talk about in church? I think it's because we're so crazy about money, right? Money, you mess with somebody's money and that's a problem. I remember being six, seven years old, having a little jar with some pennies and nickels and dimes in it as a kid. And if I found that there was pennies, nickels, and dimes missing, you better believe I was hunting my brother down, (laughs) right? You start messing with somebody's money, and they get all weird on you. It's, It's one of those things, if you don't have any money, you really want some. And if you have a ton of money, you spend all your time thinking about how to protect it, how to invest it, how to get more of it. People get mad when you start messing with their finances, and Good churches do not want to be seen as greedy. 
So we know that nothing's going to chase people away from church quicker than when you start talking about money and passing offering plates and doing all that kind of stuff. People get weirded out about that. And some for good reasons, because Lord knows there's been enough thievery in the name of God to last for all of eternity, right? But as a result of that, I'm afraid that too many people think that God is trying to separate them from their treasure. And nothing could be further from the truth. God is not trying to separate us from our treasure. He is trying to give us that which is a true treasure. And some of you are here today expecting to hear me say that you should be giving more money to the church, but I am not going to tell you that, okay? So you can relax. I am not going to tell you that you should be giving more money to the church. Now, if the Holy Spirit happens to whisper that in your ear, I'm not going to argue with that either. (laughs) But let me just say something loud and clear because everything else I say about money, I need you to understand this first or you're not going to understand what I have to say. So I want to say this loud and clear. And if you're a note taker, write this at the top of your notes. Here it is. Jesus doesn't need your money. I want to be as clear as I could possibly be. I apologize on behalf of preachers everywhere who may have misled you into thinking that somehow heaven is is running out of money and if we don't give enough money to God, God's not going to have to eat and he's going to go to the soup kitchen and all that kind of stuff. Guys, that's not the case. This is why I spent two weeks laying foundation. Who is God? He's the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. The scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is not interested in your measly little savings account. Remember who he is. He's the creator of everything. Do you think he's losing sleep over whether you gave 50 bucks last week or 100 bucks? Do you think he's... Do you think he's laying awake at night fretting over how he's going to pay the electric bill and keep heaven air conditioned? He's, that's not it, right? That's us. We're the ones that are like that. We have to remember there are two categories of things. There is God and not God. We are not God. Let's not try to make God be like us right? So we fret over things, we worry, we get anxious, we misvalue things. God doesn't do any of that. God is not sitting there wringing his hands going, how can I figure out how to get the people of Grace Fellowship to put more money in the offering plate? The elders are thinking that, but God is not thinking that. (laughs) We only think about that at budget time mostly, but um, remember this. God will never beg you to give him anything. God is the one who gives. We are the ones who receive. And anything that you give to God, you're giving back to him. So I was thinking about this, and I remember when I was maybe six or seven, my brother would have been eight or nine, we were old enough uh, to where mom would allow us to walk down to the end of the block where there was a a thrifty drugstore, right? Right? Remember five cent scoops of ice cream, old people? Remember that? Okay. So um, we used to go down there and we were allowed to walk that far. And every December at some point we would go to our mom and we would say, mom, can we have some money to buy Christmas gifts? Because at six and eight, we didn't have jobs. (laughs) 
so I said, Mom, we, we, can we have some money to buy Christmas gifts? And she would go to her wallet, and she would pull out some money, and she would say, okay, here's $2 for you, and here's $2 for you, and go ahead and go to Thrifty and buy your Christmas gifts. And we would go together all excited, and we would walk into Thrifty. We'd go up and down every aisle with our four bucks in our hands. What can we afford? What can we afford? Because we were going to be buying a Christmas gift for guess who? Mom, Right? And every year we somehow managed to find that absolutely disgusting bottle of perfume that sells for $3.99. It's, it's all decorative. It sits in a little velvet cat, holds on to it, you know. And, and we would find the worst smelling stuff that they sold at Thrifty, which is a big perfume place, right? And, and we, would, we would buy this stuff, take it home wrap it up, and on Christmas Day, wait with rapt attention as she unwrapped this bag and put this huge smile on her face because, thank God, she had finally received this fabulous gift that she had always wanted, right? And then the next day, she would take it and she would put it on her dresser next to the other bottles of perfume we had bought her the last few years where she pours a little bit out each month into the sink, right? Do you think for a second that it bothered her on Christmas morning when she opened that gift and she thought, I paid for this. <laughs> I don't think it bothered her a bit. You think it bothered her when she went, oh my gosh, this is the cheapest perfume I've ever seen? <laughs> I don't think it bothered her a bit. You moms know. It didn't bother her a bit. You know what she thought? My kids love me. They're giving me what they can, right? Where did we get it? We got it from her. <laughs> Guys, that's us. We have to understand that, that the best we can give God, and I don't care if you're a multi-gazillionaire and you put a million dollars in the offering every week. You must be attending another church if you're doing that. But, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, if you're on food stamps and you're, you're just like helping somebody out by giving them some fruit from your yard. I, I don't care... When we give to God, we're always giving to God what he gave to us. That's the best we can do. And God is blessed not by the size of the gift, but by the heart of the giver, the obedience, the level of sacrifice. This is why Jesus praised the woman who put a couple of pennies in the plate rather than the guy who put a big check in the plate, right? Because she gave everything she had. She gave herself. So... We don't have any good thing that didn't come from God. So go ahead and put your guard down. God's not trying to rip you off. God is looking for ways to bless you, not for ways to hurt you. But just like the man who sold everything to buy a field, what God understands that we sometimes miss is that not every treasure is of equal value. Sometimes we put the wrong value on the wrong treasure. Some treasures are worth more than others. And too many of us are running around like crazy people trying to figure out how we could accumulate a huge treasure of worthless junk. And Jesus talked about this all the time. He had more to say about this. Matthew chapter 6. Go back to Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this issue. Matthew 6 verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus understood a principle. Your heart is tied to your treasure. So whatever you decide to value the most, that's going to have your heart. It's going to win the battle. And, and if, you, if you love things more than you love people, you're going you're gonna to compromise relationships in order to get better things. And, and if you love even people more than you love God, then you're going to get your relationships all messed up and you're going to get into all kinds of codependent, kind of sick, psychotic kinds of relationships with people when what you should be doing is focusing on your relationship with God and letting him bless you with relationships with people. It doesn't matter. Wherever you put your treasure, that's going to get your heart. And so a big part of what I think God wants to do in our lives is go, I want you to re-examine what you think is a treasure, I want you to start treasuring what is actually worth treasuring. So, you know, some things have temporary value and some things have lasting value. And just just think about this. We say that we believe that life is short and eternity is forever. But when you watch the way we live our lives practically, it would be hard to prove it. I I want you to picture this. Um, you're, You're living in the Civil War era, right? Some of you will remember this as kids, but others will have to just think of it. You're, you're living in the Civil War era, and you're a northerner, but you've been living in the South, and it's becoming quite obvious that the war is about to wind down and the North is going to win. You've been using Confederate money because you have to live down there, and they only accept Confederate money. So you've got all of your, all of your wealth is in Confederate money but you've got it on good uh, information that the war is about to end and the North is going to win. What would you do with your Confederate money? My guess is you would trade it in for U.S. currency as quickly as you could, right? And you would hold on to just enough to get you through while you were still living in the South. And that's all that God is saying to us, is he's saying, "I, I want you to understand that there is such a thing as treasure in heaven, and a lot of books have been written about what that treasure is and people trying to guess at how that treasure works. And we read about mansions and crowns and streets of gold and all that kind of stuff, most of which I assume is symbolic, but maybe is literal in, in various ways, I don't know. And we try to think, well, is that treasure worth it? And it's really tough today to go, well, I'm going to get this great crown in heaven, so I'm going to stop treasuring things on earth and I'm going to spend my resources on heavenly value. Who cares if you have a crown? I don't, I don't care how big my crown is or what kind of jewels are in it. That doesn't excite me. But I just saw a Ferrari go down the street, <laughs> right? That's hard to get my eyes off of. And, and so sometimes we, we stop and we say we believe that it's the kingdom that we care the most about and it's eternity that we care the most about. But oftentimes we don't. You know, what makes money the most What makes money valuable? It's what you can trade it for, right? I don't care how many $100 bills you have in your pocket if nobody will accept that money. It's what you could trade it for. I'll never forget the first time I went to Zimbabwe in Africa. I get there, you get off the plane, and you have to exchange your money, right, and all that kind of stuff. We, you don't have to do that in Zimbabwe because they use American dollars. 
And I suppose that's going to be changing under the new government. That'll be interesting to see. But the first time I went there, I found that we went into this little touristy area to get something to eat. And there were these young men on the corners and they were selling Zimbabwean currency to tourists. And you could buy a hundred trillion dollar bill for a quarter. Literally, that's a picture of Zimbabwean money. A hundred trillion dollar bill. You could buy it for an American quarter. You know why? Because it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Nobody will take it. See, money is only worth what you can exchange it for. And it's not that money is a bad thing. There's a lot of, in most countries, the money they have there is worth something. And you can use it to get something of value. The thing to remember, though, is it's incredibly temporary. What you can buy with money is incredibly temporary. I want to try to illustrate this for you. So um, bear with me here. Um, I'm going to do a magic trick. Do you like magic tricks? Yeah, yeah okay. So I'm going to do a magic trick. So uh, Dave, why don't you come and help me? Dave is my lovely assistant. Let's hear for Dave. Yeah. Usually magicians have a better looking lovely assistant, but we're going to go with this. Now, <laughs> thank you. That's be it was better the other way. Um, so what I want you to do, uh, Dave, is I, I want you to take this rope. I'm going to stay here. Just unravel it as you go. I want you to go out that door. And when you get to the end of the door, I want you to go into the hallway and close the door. And I'm going to show them this magic trick. And then you can come in through that back door. But uh, pull it tight, Dave. Pull it tight. There you go. Pull it tight and close the door. See that? I made him disappear. <laughs> I told you. I told you. Marge is like, yes, Jesus. Um, okay, so here's the deal. I just want to do this for illustration. I, and I did this several years ago. Some of you will remember this, but I just find it to be so helpful. This white rope represents time for all of eternity. So I want you to picture that when it goes out that door, it goes through the wall, through the building next door, and keeps going and wraps around the earth and around the earth and around the earth again and again and again and again, and it never ends. That's how long this rope is, okay? You got that? Now here, there's a little one and a half inch red stripe. See that? Everybody see the red stripe? This red stripe is the years you spend on earth. And what blows my mind is that understanding that eternity is this long, most of us live for the red mark. We live as though this red mark is what matters. We make our investments, we spend our time, we build our relationships, we use our resources as if this red mark is what matters and all of this white rope is just meaningless. How stupid are we? How, how dumb is it to, to actually live for this tiny little speck? And by the way, that red mark is way too big. I have to make it bigger just so you can see it. But it would really be minuscule if it's the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that you get to spend on this earth, and that's all of eternity. We're living for the red dot. And God says, what are you doing? There are treasures that you're ignoring. 
and you're storing up treasures that are only usable while you're in the red dot. Too many of us are living for that red spot. Money is valuable, and we are called to be good stewards of it. But we can get in a lot of trouble, not by valuing money, but by overvaluing money. And that's what Jesus seems to be saying from all these different angles with all these stories. But it wasn't just Jesus. Paul talked about this as well. Take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 Timothy. So it's most of the way, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through your New Testament. You come to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then you get 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then you get to 1 Timothy. And I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6... Paul is instructing his protege, Timothy, who is a young pastor, and he's trying to teach him so that Timothy can teach others this principle, and we'll come back and and look at more of this principle next week. But we're going to pick it up for today in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You should highlight that. We brought nothing into this world. We came in naked and penniless, and we will leave naked and penniless. You say, no, no, no. When I die, there's going to be a million dollars in an account somewhere. Great. What are you going to do with it? It's going to get passed on to somebody else. Everything you have is not yours. It just goes through your fingers until the next person uses it. And then it goes through his fingers until the next person uses it. We got to get this idea out of our mind that my material wealth is mine. It's not. It's God's. And he gives it to whomever he will give it to while they're in the red dot. Right? We brought nothing into this world. We will take nothing out. Verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now I know you've heard at least part of that passage before because people are always quoting where the Bible says, for money is the root of all evil. Is that what the Bible says? No, no we just read it. It's, the, it's so misquoted. I hear people all the time, oh, money is the root of all evil. Money is not bad. What does it say? The love of money. And it's not the root of all evil. It is a root of all sorts of evil. In other words, there are many evils that are born out of the root of overvaluing money. And by money, we mean material riches and all of that stuff. And, and when we love money, it is impossible for us to love anything else in the same way because where your treasure is, your heart is, right? It's very difficult to experience great relationship with God when money has your whole heart. Very ex- difficult to experience great relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your family, with your friends, when money owns your heart. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. People murder for money, right? Wars start over money. People, people steal, people lie, people cheat for money. It's the root of all sorts of evil. 
And Paul's touching on a subject that's at the heart of any biblical discussion on wealth. Money in and of itself is not bad. In fact, some of the wealthiest people who ever lived, the scripture tells us, are wealthy because God made them wealthy, right? So let's just have a balanced thing. Let's not be so antagonistic to this health, wealth, and prosperity teaching, which we should be antagonistic to, that we don't recognize that God makes some people wealthy. And he blesses some people with extreme financial success. Money in and of itself is not bad. Abraham was wealthy because God blessed him and made him wealthy. Joseph was wealthy because God blessed him and made him wealthy. Job was wealthy because God blessed him and made him wealthy. Solomon is still known as the wealthiest man who ever lived. Why? Because God blessed him and made him wealthy. So it is not that God doesn't want any of us to have any wealth. That's not the point. But if you think that money is the key to a great life, you are sorely mistaken. If you don't believe me, ask Solomon, the richest man who ever lived. I won't make you turn to this just for the sake of time. You can write it in your notes. And it's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Let me just read it to you. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. This is the richest man who ever lived. All throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he has this theme going where he talks about vanity and striving after wind. He says so many of the things that we make our lives about are really like chasing wind. We chase it and chase it and chase it, but we never catch it, do we? And he says this too is vanity. This too is striving after wind. When you think that somehow if you accumulate enough money, you will have joy. You will have peace. You will have fulfillment. You will have prosperity. Listen, money and prosperity are not the same thing. God can prosper you even when you're poor. The Solomon of the modern era was a guy named John D. Rockefeller. He was a billionaire in the early 1900s when a billion was still a lot of money, Right? And Rockefeller, there's a famous quote from Rockefeller near the end of his life. He's the richest man on earth. And a reporter says to him, referring to money, how much is enough? And without skipping a beat, Rockefeller says, just a little bit more. And dies without ever knowing the fulfillment that God created him to know. And those billions went to somebody else. Paul was just the opposite of Rockefeller. Paul's an example of the fact that you don't have to be rich to be content. Rockefeller is an example of the fact that you can't be content just because you're rich. Philippians chapter 4, turn there, New Testament. Philippians chapter 4, Paul gets into this by talking about his own story. He's been talking about how how he was very wealthy, he was very well esteemed, he was highly educated, he ran in all the right circles, belonged to all the right country clubs, had everybody's honor and everybody's respect, and we left all of that behind to become a full-fledged follower of Jesus, right? And then in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, listen to what he writes. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Let me explain. 
He's writing to the Philippian church. He's not in Philippi. He's nowhere near them. He's continuing on his travels and he keeps finding himself in prison in this town and prison in that town and prison in this town. And he writes to them and continues this relationship with them and they keep sending him money. They keep taking offerings and sending him money to pay for his support. And so he's just received a check, if you will, and he's thanking them for it. And so he says, I rejoiced that you revived your concern for me. At least uh, you were always concerned, but you lacked opportunity. And then he says this, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry uh, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I'll bet you a dollar that next Sunday, if you turn on the Super Bowl, you're going to find, you're going to see a sign or you're going to find a tattoo on one of the athlete's arms or it's going to be printed under their eyes or something. Philippians 4.13. It's, it's the most common thing. You see it all the time. Coaches use it to rally the troops, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So if you're a football fan, you know that there's a big game coming this weekend. It's the Philadelphia Eagles versus the mighty New England Patriots. The Eagles are an underdog. Everybody wonders if there's any chance that they can even put up a good showing against this great New England team. And and the Eagles are filled with a bunch of Christians who love Jesus. There's so many Christians on the Eagles and the coaching staff. Um, both of their quarterbacks are on fire Christians. They have all these leaders in the team that are Christians. You keep seeing news stories about more and more players on the Eagles getting baptized by their teammates in the hotel pools as they're leading them to Christ. It's just an amazing story if you haven't read up on it. Um, and and I, I promise you that somewhere in that group, somebody on Sunday is going to say, hey, guys, listen up. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. We can beat these patriots. And they will be butchering the scripture when they do. Because <laughs> that's not what the passage means. Paul just said, listen, I can, do, I can do all things. I can live in poverty or I can live in wealth. Doesn't matter. I could be in prison or I could be free, doesn't matter. I could be in this town or that town, doesn't matter. People can be cheering for me or throwing stones at me, doesn't matter. I have learned the secret, he says, of contentment. I can do all things, suffering and prosperity, through him who strengthens me. It doesn't affect my contentment. You can do anything circumstantially. You can, you, you could take away my money, I'm fine, I'm content. You could take away my honor, no problem, I'm content. You could throw a parade where everybody shouts my name, that's great, I'm content. My circumstances do not change my contentment. He says, I've learned the secret. I am content no matter what my circumstances. Oh, how I wish more of us would live that way. Gosh, how I wish that I could be just as content after getting that awful phone call from the doctor about the test I just took as I was before I got the phone call. How I wish it was easier for me to be just as content on the day I write the check to pay my income taxes as I was on the day I cashed the check from my income. I wish that I was amateur. We all need to grow in this, but Paul says it's possible. We can be content 
Our circumstances don't control us. Let's not forget the principle of design here. The same God who created you also designed the way of success for your life. And he tells us in scripture what it is. And he begins with this thing. Give me your whole attention. Give me your whole heart. Give me your whole focus. Give me your whole devotion and you will find fulfillment in me alone. But if you take the bait and you give your heart to something else or someone else or some temporary thing that only lives in the red spot on the rope, you will find that you will be miserable and unfulfilled and always grasping for more, always chasing after the wind and that too will be vanity. When will we understand? If we don't get this straight, we're going to be in big trouble. I came across an interesting article in the most unlikely of places. So fascinating. It was in Money Magazine. Now, I don't know if any of you have enough money to bother reading Money Magazine, right? (laughs) But in Money Magazine, of all places, there was an article entitled, Why Rich People Aren't Always Happy. And it caught my attention, so I read it. It's short. I'm going to read you the whole article. Listen. Perhaps the adage, money can't buy happiness, has more truth than we think. That's because there are many studies that point to the conclusion that wealth and happiness are not positively correlated. According to the Harvard Business Review, this is not some church study, Harvard Business Review. One reason, for instance, is that wealth appears to make people less generous, In a study by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, also not known for their Christian stance on things. Participants, this is so fascinating, participants playing in a game of Monopoly grew progressively meaner as their wealth grew. (laughs) And if you've ever played Monopoly with me, you've seen me do this. So funny. By talking down to their poorer competitors and assuming more dominant positions. This is, a, this is a Berkeley study. Most egregiously, they also consumed a larger portion of a bowl of pretzels meant to be shared equally. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Similarly, another study found that when participants were given $10 and told they could contribute some or all of it to another person, the wealthier subjects contributed about 44% less. In the real world, researchers have discovered that rich people give proportionally less of their income to philanthropic causes. Wealthier people are more isolated too, which has a negative effect on happiness. Wealth engenders isolation because acquiring more money predisposes people toward keeping their distance, or more simply, they might not need their peers in the same way. Additionally, as people climb into higher tax brackets, they value independence more and social connections less. Still, that has key implications for personal happiness. Results from a Notre Dame study found that generosity indicators such as giving money, volunteering, and being available to friends were highly correlated with happiness. Similarly, generosity had a positive effect on happiness in 93% of 136 countries studied, so it goes across cultural boundaries. That's also because we tend to be happy when we are more social. Studies show we can't be happy with at least, without at least one meaningful close relationship. The more vigorous social life we enjoy, the more likely we are to experience positive emotions. 
If you're lucky enough to be rich, be mindful of your scientifically proven tendency to isolate yourself. And if you're still feeling down, try giving some of your wealth away to charity. That's Money Magazine, Harvard Business School, Cal Berkeley, and Notre Dame. Hmm. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about when he said, hey guys, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's almost like God, our designer, knew what he was talking about when he said, listen, don't love money because wherever you put your treasure, there will your heart be also. It's almost like God, the great designer and creator, actually knew what he was talking about when he said, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money at the same time. And when you read an article like that one, maybe you think, those stupid rich people, their priorities are so messed up. But here's the punchline. Everyone in this room is materially wealthy. We are among the top 1% of the wealthiest people, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. Now, you, can, you can go ahead and measure your $50,000 a year salary against somebody's $100,000 a year salary and go, see, they're rich and I'm not. Or maybe it's the, you have a $10,000 a year income and and they have 50, or maybe you're on social services and you're receiving government cheese and all that. I don't care where you fit in this whole level. And, and in this room, we all fit in different places. It doesn't matter where you fit. You are the wealthy people. So before we get too caught up in going, oh, those stupid people, they have their priorities wrong. The stupid people are us. And now we have to look in a mirror. You know what I wonder about? That guy who buried those coins in Northern California almost 200 years ago. His dreams came true. He no doubt came out for the gold rush. He struck it rich. And then he buried his treasure to keep it safe. What happened to him? I wonder. He risked so much and he lost it all. Why didn't he come back for the money? I wonder if he forgot where he buried it. How awful would that be? <laughs> you ever like lost car keys? Makes you insane, right? What if you lost 10 million in gold coins? Oh gosh, I know I put them somewhere. Where did I? Oh my gosh, I feel like there was a hill and maybe, I, <laughs> right? The guy probably spent his life and went insane in the wilderness because he lost all this. Maybe. Maybe he got sick the next day and died. Maybe he got killed. I don't know what happened to him. But I like to, I like to imagine how his story might have ended. Maybe somebody led him to Jesus. And he discovered what a real treasure was. And suddenly a bunch of gold coins just didn't mean as much to him. I don't know. We'll never know. How many opportunities did he miss because he didn't ever dig up that gold? Right? He could have he could have fed the hungry and housed the homeless, could have started hospitals and universities. Like he could have done a bunch of stuff. It never got done, at least not by him. He didn't get the joy of that. Because just like the guy in Jesus' parable, he looked out for himself and buried his coins. And as a result, 
he missed out on the real treasure. Talk about living for the red space. Money is like a lot of things. It makes a great servant and a terrible master. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But for now, let's just stand together and let's pray.